Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Some people must live in great spaces. Where the sky goes on forever. Where everyone must bend to the land. Where to hunt, to fish, to sleep under that big sky aren't activities, but a way of life. It was between here and those mountains that Cheyenne and Crow battles took place. But I like it. It's very peaceful, huh? What was it like 100 years ago? 200 years oh, ago. Oh, not much different. This was never forested. This is the dry side of the river because the primary winds come from the west. Rain tends to blow over here. That brings the snow to the mountains. Legendary writer and poet Jim Harrison is one of those people. And this is his home. I took a walk. old as I am? Maybe not. Time is a mystery that could tip us upside down. Yesterday I was seven in the woods. A bandage covered my blind eye. Sixty-eight years later I could still inhabit that boy's body without thinking of the time in between. It is the burden of life to be many ages without seeing the end of time. Next time you turn off a news cycle filled with shouting bobbleheads, convinced that America is devolving into a moronic inferno, questioning the greatness of your nation, maybe you should come here. Here are your Purple Mountains Majesty. This is the landscape that generations of dreamers, despots, adventurers, explorers, crackpots, and heroes fought and died for. It's one of the most beautiful places on Earth. There is no place like it. Montana. Many have come to claim their peace over the years. 
But before the prospectors and explorers, there were the Plains Indians. The Absaraca have been master horsemen since they adopted Spanish-introduced Mustangs in the 18th century. General Blackjack Pershing, he called the Native Americans the centaurs of the plains. Better known as the Crow, they were once part of the larger Hidasa tribe. Centuries ago, they split off on their own and wandered or were pushed by conflict with the Blackfeet, Cheyenne, and Dakota until settling here in the Yellowstone River Valley. That horse became everything to our people. Kennard Reelbird grew up ranching and raising horses here at Medicine Tail Coulee, which happens to be the exact spot where General George Custer had the worst day of his life. Kennard raises horses for rodeo, Go! for riding, and for this. Indian relay racing. The athletic ability on them kids are just amazing. The competition is intense. They travel all over to compete at this collarbone-smashing, skull-cracking, bone-snappingly dangerous sport. Former allies and former blood enemies alike. Requires a lot of courage. I'll bet. And a high threshold for pain. It's representative of warrior mentality. One rider, three horses. When they're lined up, gun goes off. It's like a spontaneous combustion. Top speed is around 40 miles an hour. And after each lap, the rider dismounts at full freaking gallop and leaps, hopefully, onto the next horse. Yes, it's as dangerous and difficult as it looks. The prizes at big events run into the thousands of dollars, but really, it's about bragging rights. And pride. Being in motion, in rhythm, in time, and in one with that horse, you develop strength of character. And once they conquer that fear, that feeling of accomplishment is so great. When they walk back from that race, they have this sense of pride and self-worth of sky high. Now they've identified with their ancestors. Ken's wife, Diane, has prepared a lunch of buffalo steaks, potato salad, fry bread, and Indian pudding made of juneberry stewed with flour and sugar. When I looked at my ancestors, they didn't have diabetes, they didn't have much cancer. They were very strong, durable people. And I said, well, I'm going to start eating nothing but buffalo. Over the course of your life, how much has this area changed? Quite a bit. We went and picked up a four-wheeler last Sunday, be the first four-wheeler on the place. Given those changes, what are the Crow people going to be doing in 20 years, 30 years? The horse going to play an important part in the culture still? I think so, yeah, because what's a place going to be like without horses? I wouldn't want to be there. Who owns this land? Can anyone really own it? Who gets to use it? These are big questions that cut across traditional ideological lines out here where they have real meaning, not theoretical meaning. All this belongs to one man, this guy, Bill Galt. They were about a half mile from the confluence of Rock Creek and the Smith River. 
Galt Ranch is 100,000 acres of grazing land, mountains, cliffs, and valleys. There's also some of the best trout fishing on the planet. Bill, the water level on the creek looks good. This is Bill's friend, the author and journalist, David McCumber. They disagree on land use, a major issue. Remember when you could do that and still be friends? Lee Kinsey is a professional outfitter who Bill leases some areas of his property to for fishing. All this to outwit a fish. I know. It's amazing. All right, go ahead. Stop that tip high. Throw that thing straight up in the air. Good. Perfect. Bill's a fifth-generation Montanan whose principal business is raising cattle. He's no weekend cowboy. This is work, and he pays a lot of attention to his land. And a big issue for him, for just about everybody around here, is the 1985 Stream Access Law. Anybody that could access a stream via a public means could in fact use the stream, even if it was on private ground, as long as they stayed within the ordinary high water mark of the stream. Widely heralded by sportsmen and outdoor enthusiasts, the law did not go down well with landowners like Bill. Oh, got him. Something took a bite. Yep. He's still got a fish right in there, too. Oh, I see him. Perfect. Oops, that's that. Whoa! The fish of the day. Nice brownie. All right. Woo! Beautiful thing. That's pretty. But I will not eat you today, my friend. Not today. <laughs> For lunch, a modest, protein-centric repast of steak. A Wagyu Angus hybrid bred and raised right here on Bill's Ranch. There's the marble and a Wagyu steak. That's what makes them good. Oh, that's nice. And it's pretty damn tasty, I can tell you. So you hold an opposing view, is that correct, on access? The idea behind the stream access law, that if you stay in the water, it's public. I agree with that concept. But where do you draw the line for private property rights? State were to pass a law that your restroom was public because the public needed it in your house. Right. But just because this isn't my backyard doesn't mean it's any less mine than your toilet is yours. We still pay taxes on every foot of it. I'm an old-school lefty, but i got to say, I kind of completely understand the property owner's point of view here. There would be no ambiguity in my feeling if, if I'd inherited this land and it had been in my family for generations and I looked around at it and wanted to keep it like it is. If I were to go to a bar in town and I would ask, how do you feel about this issue, where would it break? What would most people say? a fisherman or a landowner? Clearly divided right down the middle. But, you know, a lot of people are going to say, when I was a kid, I used to be able to go hunt and fish, and, and I can't now. It's stuff's getting closed off. I have some sympathy for that. Anybody that's not complying with stream access merely has to step into the stream when he hears you coming. Right. The spirit of it is, it makes sense. The spirit of it's thievery. Awesome. We own it, and they took it, and that's not stealing it without compensation. I think it's still here. This is about being a good neighbor, right? Yeah. I mean, so if people ask nicely more often than not, you're going to say yes? We do. Used to be, before stream problem. access, we seldom required somebody to have permission if they just behaved right. themselves. After stream access is when the outfitters came into the world. Not because we wanted to make money, but we wanted somebody there patrolling and policing it. The outfitters take care of it. A small stream like this can only take so much pressure. It really can. And so we try to manage it, fish it responsibly. And if somebody wants to walk all the way from the Smith five miles up to here, and do it legally, I say all the more power to him. That's what right. I'm saying. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. At first look, you'd think this is the worst place on earth. A ravaged, toxic, godforsaken hill, threatened from above, riddled with darkness below. But you'd be wrong. Butte, Montana. It is, in fact, heartbreakingly, poignantly beautiful. The gallus frames seem eyesores for only a second before it becomes clear why they're points of fierce pride for locals for whom they signify and commemorate everything. For Montanans, many people consider it sort of a black eye. I happen to think it's sort of the essence of, of Montana. Aaron Perrette was born in Butte. He's a professor of literature and a chronicler of the city's colorful literary history. There is something beautiful about this city, right? Yeah, the enduring decay. Like in Detroit or a Buffalo or Cleveland, you can see the aspirations of the builders or the people who they were building for. As I've gotten older, I kind of think about it the way Europeans romanticize those ruins in Greece and Rome. Beauty is America's Acropolis. In its heyday, Butte produced tens of billions of dollars worth of copper that built, well, America, that helped power the country defended against Germany and Japan. Without this hill, no copper wire, no electricity. At the turn of the century, Marcus Daly's amalgamated company consumed its competitors and became Anaconda Copper. By the 20s, the company, as it was referred to, was one of the largest corporations in America, generating staggering wealth by today's or any day's standards. People came from all over the world to make their fortunes here or simply for steady work, a better life. Cornish, Welsh, a lot of Eastern Europeans. Croatians, Serbs, very ethnically diverse. By Montana standards or by any standards? I would say by any standards, that's kind of a micro version of New York City. Meterville was an Italian neighborhood and developed a tradition of supper clubs. Lydia's was opened in 1946 by Lydia Micheletti in the Four Mile, the valley below Butte. 
So what is a supper club? I've heard about this tradition, but I don't really understand what distinguishes a supper club from a restaurant. At least in Montana, the supper clubs are a variation on Meterville style. It involves this antipasto beginning. Sliced meats, sweet potato salad, salami and cheese, side salad, pickled peppers, and breadsticks. Then when you actually get your entree, you get, oddly enough, ravioli or spaghetti or here, both, but also french fries. Odd. That may be unique to Montana. For entrees, seared scallops and white wine sauce for Aaron. Me, noticing we're pretty much landlocked around here, I go for the extra thick tenderloin of beef. Thank you very much. This is wacky. It makes no sense. It is somewhat bizarre to have scallops and french fries. Yeah. Meterville no longer around. No, it's not. That it was way. swallowed up by the pit in the uh, early 60s. For the first 70 years, it was hard rock mining, blasting and digging tunnels deep into the ground. By the 1950s, mining was moving increasingly to above ground, open pit, which meant fewer jobs and a bigger, more visible footprint. By 1955, the Berkeley Pit had become the largest open-pit copper mine in the world. As it expanded, it devoured Meterville and surrounding neighborhoods. There was money down there to be dug out of the ground, and that's what Butte had always been about from the beginning. In 1983, the pumps that held back the groundwater from thousands of miles of tunnels beneath the city were turned off. The pit filled with 30 billion gallons of water. And as mine tailings and mineral refuse contaminated the water, it became a giant, insanely toxic lake of sulfuric acid. A monument to greed and heedless exploitation of the earth, and something eerily, if tragically beautiful. If you're still living here, you've got to have some kind of weird, perverse pride in the pit. Absolutely. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you nailed it. Obviously, the pit is an enduring emblem of that rapacious capitalist greed, but you also have people here who are proud of, proud of where they live. And the history of Butte, in many ways, is, you know, this town that should have died, but never did. Part of that is luck, geographically, but also the character of the people here. You know, they endured. As you might have gathered by now, this is a working-class town, and unusual in that it's a union town, a proudly union town in an otherwise very red state. Butte is the most interesting, important town in America that nobody knows about. Bryant McGregor is the owner of the Silver Dollar Saloon in what was once Butte's Chinatown. So we call ourselves Butte America. Amanda Curtis, a former state congresswoman, was born of the labor movement. She's a unionist, an advocate for workers, and this solidly union city she calls home. When you got off the boat in Ellis Island, it said Butte pinned to your shirt. And it wasn't Butte, Montana, right? It was Butte. America. We were founded by European immigrants who came from socialist countries with all of these crazy socialist ideas. Would you say Montana, in a stereotypical way, is relatively socially conservative? Oh, absolutely. But Butte is a labor town. Nobody knows anything about union history. You know, they don't teach it. When the country was at its peak, unions were at their peak. When wages were at their peak, unions were at their peak. That was then. This is now. This is the era of I got mine, Jack. That's what makes Butte <laughs> different. It's not a I've got mine. It isn't. It's, it's Why? truly not. Union is together. We've grown this community out of taking care of each other. You have to remember what it was like here for workers before unions, if you can imagine. Men worked underground for as little as $3 a day. 
10 to 12 hour shifts, six days a week. Thousands died over the years in industrial accidents or from silicosis, lungs ravaged by the airborne silica dust. You don't have any rights in your workplace unless you bond together and have a collective voice. In a one-company town, despite hiring assassins and strikebreakers, Butte's thousands of workers successfully managed to unionize. Labor costs increased while copper prices slumped. Anaconda responded by moving their production increasingly south, way south, to Chile, where such impediments as labor laws and fair wages were more malleable. We serve as the example about what happens if you allow unfettered capitalism. But isn't there something beautiful about unfettered capitalism? Because look, this this structure oh, yeah. here. We powered, we powered the entire world. As long as they're making that money in the goddamn United States of America first. Right. I feel I'm a patriot. But if you're taking jobs away from America to export them overseas. You're not. You're not. And we've been talking about this for decades in this country, right? Or keep our jobs here. Yeah. Time sinks slowly to the deepest part of the ocean the Mariana Trench. She's tired of light, and there it's pure black. They say that Butte is a mile high and a mile deep, and to get an idea of what they mean, you've got to go down. Down deep into the hill. An intricate warren of tunnels riddled through the rock and soil that lay beneath the city was flooded forever by water and darkness. The Orphan Boy Mine is one of the few remaining hard rock mines in the city. Today it serves as a training facility for the Montana Tech School of Mines and Engineering. There's five generations of mining here. In order to survive and provide the resources for America, these people were super skillful. Jim Keene is a state senator and labor advocate who grew up working the mines of Butte. How many miles of tunnel under Butte total? 10,000 10, miles of tunnels. 10,000 miles. And I've Like this. Like this. Only smaller, usually. Larry Hoffman is a longtime mining engineer and instructor. Matt Crattinger is the new guy, a hard rock miner by day. He likes to relax by spending his free time down here, playing. I come mining for fun on my days off. Okay. It's one of those things that just gets in your blood. You got a lot of pride in it. These guys like it underground. And even more, they seem to like drilling holes deep into the rock face. recognized the miner was at the top of the food chain. When I grew up, he was considered just a, like a doctor or a lawyer because everybody knew 
he was the one making everything work. The other thing about mining is it's so intensive. I mean, you need engineers, you need guys running ventilation, a mechanic or a carpenter or a pipe fitter. It's just such a diverse asset to have all these different types of people. That's what was so good about it. Mining was always dangerous, but these men are proud of what they do and of the generations who came before them who built neighborhoods and schools and helped power the nation. They loved their work, they raised their families, they worked all the time. It was a destination with hopes and dreams of hard work leading to a better life. You know, the company's a son of a bitch, let's face it, but they were our son of a bitch. So, so you know, that's just the way it was. The community worked to support the people. Here's the fun part. Cool. Well, how many holes do you usually drill oh, to make a round? Between 20 and 30. What is a round? This pattern has to be drilled out. And every time you advance the face, that is a round. You drill it, you load it, you blast it, you muck it, you bolt it, you drill it again. And that's a cycle. We're in the loading process right here. They call collar priming or top priming this hole. Switch, still away. Back in the day, it was dynamite. But in the 60s, they started switching over to this stuff, ANFO, ammonium nitrate, and fuel oil. Okay, so got everything charged up, loaded. Now we get to time it. This is kind of where I got hooked on mining. As soon as I set that first round off, it was, how do we do another one? Dude, fascinating. This is where it all starts. All right. <laughs> right here. Everybody got everything out? Four seconds of silence. All right, everybody's good, everybody's ready? Yep. All right. Fire in the hole. One, two, three. That's deep. Welcome to mining. That's deeply satisfying. <laughs> oh yeah, very cool. Can we see the smoke? What is that, vent it out? Yeah, the smoke will start moving towards us. You gotta get in the smoke. Oh yeah, smells like victory. This is the smell of mining. We'll see if it all works as planned. That shockwave is awesome. Isn't it? Yeah. This is like being an astronaut right now. You go in there, you're gonna be the first person in the world to see what you see in. Right. Did you break it? Yeah. Nice, huh? Happy I'm with their work? I'm very happy with it. Everything came out just the way it should. Well, that's another six-foot advance. And that is around. Beautiful thing. Yes, it is. I fell in love with the dark and the blowing things up and the people. The people's a big thing. You meet some of the most interesting people. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. About one-third of Montana is public land. It was set aside for the people of the United States of America. Generally speaking, it is intended for multi-purpose use. Timber harvest, grazing land, hiking, fishing, hunting, and mining. These open lands are important to hunters and anglers like Dan Bailey. He's the Montana representative for Pheasants Forever, an organization working to conserve pheasants and other wildlife through careful management. So this is a piece of property that's owned by Pheasants Forever. It's open to public access. This is through Montana's block management system. We sign in, they collect all the tags, they know who's on the property. Today, me and my friend Joe Rogan are going after some delicious pheasant for dinner. Yeehaw, ladies and gentlemen. Joe is, of course, the voice of the UFC and the host of the wildly popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. In recent years, Joe has become an advocate for the notion that you should, whenever possible, know where your food comes from. The connection that you have with your food when you kill it yourself, you know, it's just its a totally different experience. I believe that if you choose to eat meat, that you there should be a little bit of guilt and shame involved. Something did die. So there should be a sense of loss and an understanding. Right here, this is it. I mean, you know where your food comes from. That's the smallest circles you can get. Hey, Tony, the three things we can hunt here are Hungarian partridge, which is a small bird in the big covey, sharp-tailed grouse, and then rooster pheasants. So no, no hen pheasants. I'll call out what it is. Yeah, I'm going to wait for you, because I sure as hell wouldn't be able to identify them. So we'll get one person on one side of the jaw, one person on the other, and I'll run the dogs through the middle. Which way are they going to break, do you think? Anyway, could be any. Any which way. We're hoping over us. Hen, 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 hen. What happens if you accidentally shoot a hen? You get in trouble? Report yourself. You've heard about the walk of shame? So really, you have a split second to determine whether it's a shootable bird. thing. We're counting on you. That's a rooster. I got a shot at that, too. That was an easy shot. Shit. <sighs> Some days. Yeah, one of those days, huh? Public lands in Montana, we're fortunate we have a lot of them, but, you know, they get a lot of pressure, and so when you get one of these birds, it's pretty special. Public land hunting is always always a lot of work. In general, anybody and everybody can come out here and, and chase your birds, so. There goes a bunch of birds right there. Yeah. See them going through the trees there? I saw. A bunch of pheasants just got up. Let's get serious about this. All right. We'll take these dogs to the river. Oh, nice shot. Dibbert. You gotta get up on that bank. Who got it? Anthony got it. Nice. I missed that one over here. Good boy. Come, bring it here. Come on. Good boy. Come on, Junker. Nice shot. Thank you. Bring it here. Come on. Nice drop. There you go. Montana rooster. It's good eating. bird. All right, man. Start plucking. <laughs> With one in the bag, we meet up with the rest of our party to cook and drink and eat. Lan Tawney is a fifth-generation Montanan and an active conservationist. 
Hal Herring is a journalist for Field and Stream. The pheasant is cooked two ways. Marinated in soy and fish sauce, sriracha and lime, browned in butter and buffaloed like chicken wings. Or dredged in flour and Cajun spice, sautéed with garlic and brandy, then braised a bit with stock and wild mushrooms. Collard greens and bacon as a side serve as a nice cleanse. Man, these greens are good. And the bird's delicious. Oh, yeah. Mm. Man, amazing day. Eating it today. It was beautiful today. Why should people in New York or San Francisco who've never hunted, in what way does your access to hunting ground impact on this nation in a positive way? Why should they care? Well, it's not hunting ground. It's public ground. It's owned by the people of the United States of America. And I, I just see our country, it's very nuanced. And private property is bedrock. But public lands have worked. But you're talking big government stepping in and saying, we're taking all this land and we're going to protect it from exploitation by capitalists. Public land management is not perfect for anybody, but it's a path forward. It's not happening anywhere else in the world. And the reason that it came here is because we are such a great country. But as we move into the future, it's going to take everybody understanding how unique it is to America. To say that hunting and conservation are intertwined is an absolute fact. It is an absolute fact, but it is a really painful admission that we are the masters of this environment, whether we like it or not. As thinking beings, we're the only ones in the food chain that understand the consequences of the imbalance. And therefore, we do have a right to take care of this thing and manage it. When it comes to animals that can alter their environment, we're unique. You know, I'm not a hunter, obviously. We hunted all day today. If you take a My shit, daddy, you're a shitter. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> My daddy didn't take me for the long run. what it is. <laughs> you shot that pheasant. We're eating that pheasant. There's no closer connection to food almost than that. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding by people that don't hunt or people that call themselves animal activists that we don't love the animals as much as they do. And that's just not true. We do what we do because we love wildlife. Mother Nature. We love wildlife. We want people to enjoy it. You know, three of us, we have decided to spend what we do for a living to protect wildlife and to protect access and to protect hunting heritage. They're fellow living beings that live in a very hard scrabble life. They're howling right now because they killed something, whatever it is. They're letting all the other coyotes know and they're gonna eat it right now and that is what they do. You know, have you ever been out on an open body of water where you're just surrounded by the ocean? Or, or the desert? Or here, actually, for that matter. Right. right. You do begin to understand your place in the universe, meaning, at the end of the day, I'm not that different from that pheasant I shot today. We're all in it together. The elk and me and the wolves, what we do to the world, we do to ourselves. We're all in it together. As the evening progresses, the bourbon flows and the fire burns down to coals. A late night vape with Joe and the earth seems to shift on its axis. Later, stumbling out of my tent, I find myself somehow no longer vertical, looking up, up at a magnificent bewilderment of stars.
Livingston, Montana may be one of the prettiest and oddest towns in America. It's also one of my favorites. Originally a railroad town, a place where cattlemen could drink and philander. Then later, a gateway to Yellowstone National Park. In the 1960s, the surrounding Paradise Valley was a popular setting for Hollywood films, and local ranchers began to see a strange mix of creative types showing up. First to work on films, but later to stay and play cowboy for real. Writers like Richard Brodigan, Tom McGuane, and Jim Harrison. Actors like Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, the notorious director Sam Peckinpah made Livingston their home. The Mint Bar opened in the 1920s and holds the oldest liquor license in Montana. Railroad workers used to drink here. Everybody drank here. Look at that picture of the bar right there. Yeah, that picture is this building during Prohibition. It was a grocery store. My friend Dan Laren is a jack-of-all-trades native son a hunter, fisherman, and a key figure in the life of the town. I mean, this is a rough and tumble railroad cattleman town, right? Yeah. Why did they put a railroad stop here? It was X far from Minneapolis mm -hmm. and X far to Seattle. It was kind of middle ground, 700 miles that way, 700 miles that way. Right. Um, I mean, who would exemplify the qualities that a, a preponderance of Montanans would aspire to? The American Indian, the Plains Indian that lived here before a white man, because it was a tough, a tough place to live. <laughs> you know? When was the last time you walked outside and you looked at those mountains and you said, I possibly live in the most awesome place on earth? When, when was the last time that happened? I, I do. I never take this place for granted, okay? It's one of the most beautiful places that I've been, and I like to enjoy the outdoors. Take my son hunting. Right. You know. You know that moment when an animal dies, and they look at you, and there's a look in their face, I always interpret it as, I'm very disappointed in you. Yeah, well, as an older hunter, I'm feeling more and more remorse for the animals that I kill. And that's, that's why I use every part of the animal that I can. I have respect for that creature. I always felt like, look, whatever this thing I shot, I will treat it the way I would like to be treated. I mean, you're gonna shoot yeah. me. Please, don't just leave me there. Yeah, don't just rip my breasts out and throw my ass away. <laughs> yeah. That's a country music song right there. <laughs> don't rip my breasts out. <laughs> <laughs> Time. 
she procured us drifting through our lives like clouds, riding her like the gentlest of horses. You know, if you're seeing northern lights and the thunderstorm in the east, and wolves howling all the once, it's sort of nice. <laughs> Do you know there are 90 billion galaxies? I get a little tentative when I hear that. Jim Harrison is a colossus, a legend, and the last of his kind. People forget children grow up making up stories, and that's all I'm doing as an adult, you know? He is one of America's greatest poets, the author of 39 novels and books, many set in Montana, including The Legends of the Fall. He's a screenwriter and gourmet. In his food memoir, The Raw and the Cooked, he chronicles many, many epic meals. He has lived a life that can only be imagined. Dan is his friend and confidant, and the two have for years hunted and fished together. Here's to the game. His health prevents him from hunting, but not from enjoying a meal of spatchcock Hungarian partridge. I made a liver loaf with elk meat, elk liver, and pork fat. Awesome. Some spices. Going to have some beets. Quail in aspic. Quail en gelée. En gelée. Elk carpaccio. And a morel and chanterelle risotto using a stock made from 10 pounds of roasted game bird bones. And smoked trout? Smoked trout, yeah. We caught these on the bighorn. You know, this is my problem in Montana. All this primitive country-ass cooking that you local yokels do. Oh, and a risotto with wild mushrooms. It's awesome. Every time I come here, I say, are there others like you? Yeah, a few. That risotto's gorgeous. Excellent. Jimmy, you want to grab a hun right here? Okay, and a couple of morels. Is writing any way to make a living? No, not largely. I try to explain this to people. You have to be either a monster of self-regard, uh, delusional, or just so lucky that, I mean, the forces of the universe are aligned against you. Yeah, the only thing you can do is if you're just completely tenacious and right in disregard for every outside circumstance that there is. Most people look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm getting old or something like that. But Shakespeare, the poet, said, devouring time, blood thou thy lion's paws. That's a little better, huh? <laughs> nice view. I cannot complain about this. Yeah. So what are you doing, around half a year here and half a year yeah. in, uh, in Arizona? Arizona. Real interesting culture. The ever-present border patrol, which I tease a lot. I'll be hunting in their border patrol plane flies over, and I run under a tree like I'm hiding. And then their vehicles start swarming in. They say, Harrison, you asshole. I says, I'm trying to keep you on your toes. <laughs> what was it about this place that, that hooked you? 
Well, I'm claustrophobic acutely, so, so Montana's about the best place you can live. You never feel hemmed in any direction. You could go miles and miles. <laughs> It had been very hot for three weeks, so I worked well into a cool night when at 3 a.m. a big thunderstorm hit. The lightning was relentless 200 years ago when the Cheyenne from the east attacked the Absaroka in this valley. A group of the Cheyenne were Masson, the wolves of heaven. Warriors who painted themselves solid yellow. I want to be a yellow wolf of heaven. They disappeared into the lightning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.